I, I hope that people are able to use this to convert people more effectively and to hopefully do a better job at evangelizing to your kids. You know, as we say, the first 18 years of a kid's life are your chance to pitch your culture to them. And if you don't do a good job, they're going to leave. Exactly. And then your culture will die. Your traditions will die. <laughs> Everything's and over. your people will die. Everyone you've ever loved will disappear to history. Everything that every ancestor before you has worked to do will be for nothing. Would you like to know more? Hello, Simone. So this video is going to be an interesting topic, but it's one I've been thinking about when I've been looking at... So people who don't know me, Simone, like my favorite radio stations, and you'll point this out, they are always like Christian talk radio. I really like listening to like long Christian apologetics. I, despite being a secular person, I really culturally identify with these groups. I really just like listening to them. I find the, 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 the lessons that they're teaching are often broadly applicable to my life. Totally. That we as a society, like if we're talking about like the structures, like the core enemy right now in society, now there's another enemy that we're going to have to deal with eventually. So we sort of have the two enemies. Of, uh, of <laughs> the enemy, yes. The core, the core enemy right now is sort of wokeism, the mind virus, the cult, whatever you want to call it, that's taking over society right now. And religious traditions act as a very good structural protection against that for many individuals' minds. Now, the second enemy is the religious extremists who want everyone on earth dead except people who think like them or converted, which from my perspective, you know, if you if you completely erase my kids' culture, then, you know, they might as well, not might as well. I mean, I would appreciate them updating the culture on their own based on mm. their ideology rather than just like whole class accepting what somebody else is telling them. Right. Um, but anyway, so so that's the future enemy and and groups like that you know, these low technology, extremely aggressive groups that want everyone who doesn't think like them dead, they are growing. And when the the woke castle falls, that will be the next uh, multiple populations, because there's many groups like this, you know, they exist across religious traditions, that will be the next group that we're that we're fighting. But even to fight them, we need to preserve uh, an alliance and a, a large population of, of you know mentally healthy religious individuals who still have traditions who still have uh, some sense of culture and one of the ways that we have done this with our family is essentially take the scraps of our ancestral traditions and rebuild a sort of secular religious framework which we often talk mm -hmm. about but that is not what we're going to talk about on this video because I would also like not just people to do what we're doing, but also succeed in evangelism more. Mm. And when I say succeed in evangelism, I think the single most important person that you will evangelize to in your entire life is your children. 100%. And, and so when people think about evangelism, they do not often think about their own kids. They think about going out and trying to convert other people. But if you look at statistics, there was a set of statistics that we were sharing in a, a recent video. The game is just completely different now. And I'm going to put this statistic here again, because it's just so like, it's not like things are a little different. You know, if you look at belief in Gen X in right now, people yeah. who, who share believing in God without a doubt. So these are people who believe in God without a doubt. Within Gen X, you're looking at like, 65% within Gen Z, you're looking at like 33%. And this That's is back in 
2018 it appears to still be dropping. So you're dealing with something entirely different now. And as I pointed out in previous generations, as we pointed out in the previous episode on this, you could have just like peer pressured them, right? Or you could have assumed that they wouldn't be getting outside ideas constantly. But mm -hmm. now it's possible for your kids to deconvert and not tell you that they've deconverted and you never find out. And we've seen that a decent And we've amount. seen this persistently with very conservative, wholesome families. Yeah. Like like the, the epitome of wholesomeness, you know, I, I'd say like the most good old boy type families you could imagine. Mm -hmm. These are the families where I see this happening the most. And it happens the most within these families because these kids are often raised with manners and to care about their parents' feelings and mm -hmm. like are emotionally mature and yeah. they don't want to hurt their parents. You know, they're just like, look, I have no... And, and that's the thing that leads to the most dangerous type of deconversion. People think that the type of deconversion that you need to be afraid of is the type of deconversion in which your like kid the ends obvious up rebellious teen who's like, I hate you, mom. And like, you know, like actively talks about yeah, being atheist yeah, and whatnot. Like I, yeah. I hate my religion. And that yeah. was why a lot of people deconverted before. These kids do not hate their religion. <laughs> they do not hate their traditions. They just weren't convinced by them. Yeah. And that is infinitely more dangerous because they're not going to tell you. They are not going to notify you that the, their traditions have dropped. And so let's talk about evangelism, right? So as people, like when I was younger, I was in, you know, I, I, I didn't like the new atheists. I thought that they were always kind of pussies. But I would have been considered on the outside of that movement and stuff like the subgenius movement and stuff like that, right? And you were in... I mean, you were raised like Buddhist slash Mormon, but were always sort of like atheistic growing up. Like what was your faith like in middle school and high school? If someone asked me, I probably would have said it was a mixture of Buddhism and Shinto, <laughs> to be honest with you. Did you actually believe this stuff or was it just like an aesthetic choice? I felt most moved when it's Shinto shrines and like that felt the most natural to me from a faith perspective. So in terms of like having moving religious experiences, the most I'd ever experienced that was at Shinto shrines in Japan. So that's why I told people that it, it just felt right to me. And that's it. There was no like thought behind it. And my, my parents had sent me to, to Dharma school and, and sort of tried to raise me Buddhist after at Mormon preschool, I started asking them about Jesus and God and they freaked out. So yeah, I wouldn't say it was organized, but I, so I'm not a good example of like a religious kid who's lost their religion I'm, a, I'm the perfect example of someone who was raised in soft culture, with soft culture, and was just broadly spiritual, but not really. Yeah, and I grew up in Texas, so I had a lot of evangelists and, and apologetics talk with me about this stuff because I was always open about it. So I've gotten to hear many of the arguments used. And so I think that this provides a unique perspective where I can like totally honestly, as someone who has never been convinced by these arguments, tell you which ones are the most convincing and how to structure your debate around this stuff to be most likely to be effective mm. at converting somebody or keeping somebody within the faith that might otherwise deconvert, right? Like, like a young kid who doesn't really believe it anymore and you basically need to evangelize to them to get them to believe it because, the, you know, the default culture around them doesn't. Right. So the first thing I would say is in terms of how you, well, actually, I'd ask you, have you ever had any moments in your life where somebody came up to you with a religious tradition and you were really convinced by their argument around it? What was never. that argument? Never, never, never. Have you ever been really unconvinced? Like somebody came up to you and you're like, this is just not working at all. You, you think this is convincing, but it's not. Many Mormon friends like would give me the Book of Mormon, but 
and like it exposed me to like really great experiences like going to see Christmas carols at the local like ward but mm, it was yeah they never tried to aggressively convert me or tell me about their religion so no I don't think I was ever well so that's the first one that I often see somebody giving somebody else a bible or their religious book yeah yes yeah like that's gonna work I've, I've never heard of that working I've never heard of it working either. And, and then, and then, like, even it goes to like the tradition of Gideon's Bibles, right? That like there was this concerted effort to put Bibles in drawers of bedstand tables in hotels that like someone's going to, in a moment of desperation, pick it up and have some kind of moment. No, I do think that what is much more convincing, and we do know people who are converted this way, is people of a certain religion. And I see this especially with Mormons giving friends, neighbors, friends, kids experiences adjacent to the Mormon community and those kids or those people just loving it, loving the community, loving the lifestyle, loving how wholesome and loving everything is and being convinced through that exposure to convert. So I think so, being exposed to a, a religion's amenities can be very compelling, but I don't think it has anything to do with faith. Well, hold on. I do think it has to do with faith, but we'll get to faith arguments that are compelling versus ones that aren't. Okay. But the book itself, this is a belief that I think comes from the, well, God will guide them to it. Like God mm -hmm. will guide them to it and open their heart. And I think when you're looking at stuff like this, like the way I would structure this, what's the, the non-offensive way to say this? God really wants you to do the work on this, you know, yeah. in terms of, of, of the, the people. And, and, and so this, this like, Bible seating, I guess I call it, it could conceivably, like the way I could imagine it working is somebody is at like a bottom of the barrel situation and they come upon a, a Bible, right? And they're mm -hmm. like, okay, th now I'm open to being converted. Because that is one of the times in somebody's life where they are most likely to be converted is when they are at rock bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's where you get, you know, Bernigan Christian phenomenon. Totally. But you're better off if you're targeting rock bottom people, targeting them through institutions. So like AA is a great yes. evangelic vehicle, even though it does a ton of harm, you know, and I think we'd argue in another video that it probably kills more people a year than any organization in the world. Yeah. Because it hides access to the Sinclair method and naltrexone in the United States, yeah, real uh, even though it's cures alcohol in 80% of cases, alcoholism. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane, but, but they would call those people dry drunks. Specifically, dry drunks is a term used by extremists within AIA for individuals who found a way to quit drinking or moderate their drinking that was not AA because they believe that, well, if you found a way to quit drinking that wasn't AA, then you didn't get all the extra ideology that AA was meant to impart to you, and so you still may as well be a drunk, which I think really reveals their hand, which is what they meant is... Um, they weren't able to use your alcoholism to convert you to their weird cult. We can get into this in a whole other video, but it is a convincing evangelic tool. And I think that even better tools could be built that focus on those communities. Yeah. Even Scientologists figured this out. I mean, if you look at one of the things that Scientologists focused on was like addiction centers and alcohol rehabilitation centers, because that is where you could sort of stamp someone into these harder iterations of your cultural tradition. Well, um, now, are, there must be a bunch of cults out there that use rock bottom to yeah. convert people that like host houseway, halfway houses or something. Are there not? There have to be. There are. There are. Okay. I mean, a lot of cults focus on these these communities, and it's because it's effective. 
Now, it's it's interesting that it is often groups that you and I, like if we were evangelizing a belief system, we would be less interested in doing. I mean, one, mm -hmm. of, the, one of the things everybody hates about Kavlitis is the concept of the elect that, that we have and that we have our current iteration of that belief. But the, the core aspect of that is is we don't believe that winning all people to our way of thinking is equally valuable. Right. And the very fact that somebody is at rock bottom means they are of lower utility to us than other individuals. And I would prefer that my kids never hit rock bottom for me to convince them of a cultural practice. And I would also prefer, you know, as we bring people in that they're, I hate to say it, but like the amount of utility we get from a person is correlated with their level of you know, uh, the level to which they have their life together, the level to which they're an intellectualist. And what's really cool with the rock bottom people that, that these faiths do do is they can build them back up. But yeah. building them back up requires a pre-existing sort of cultural set of support networks. Hmm. Now, the Mormon thing is really interesting because that is how your friends were evangelizing to you. They were taking you to Mormon community events. Because and I love they, them. God, I love them. Yeah, they being smart Mormons knew that that's how Mormons, I think, today most frequently convert. Well, well it might that. have converted me if I were the type of person who actually wanted to be around people. Oh, yeah. You intensely really hate worked. being around people. So. And, yeah, and it's horrible. Well, but like if, if I'm a normal person and I don't want to feel alone and I don't want to feel isolated and I was exposed to that, I would immediately be like, oh, the solution is so easy. I just convert. I just joined the LDS church. And this is really interesting to me where we've had another video on this. Um uh, about the genetics of religion. And this is how you can get genetic vortexes where if Mormonism is disproportionately converting people who are extroverts, like really mm. out there, they like being around people, mm. then Mormons are going to be more extroverted on average mm -hmm. than a cultural group like ours, which is like intensely introverted. Mm. I mean, Scrooge is the typical Calvinist, right? From, from the Scottish. Bah humbug, ladies and gentlemen. What? Bah humbug. Bah humbug, right? Yeah, but uh, you know, so so I, I I see that. So let's talk about other arguments that I have found very uncompelling. Or, or, or first, I want to give you a way of framing this question in your head. If you're a religious person, think about other religions that have come close to converting you, and if another religion has never come close to converting you, then look to see if they use arguments and apologetics that mirror your arguments and apologetics that you are frequently using. So an example here that I frequently see Christians use is look at all of the things the Bible predicted. Oh, right? Okay. It, it must be a true book. It must be a divinely inspired book because it was able to predict so many things that were going to happen in the future. Huh. The problem is, is that Muslims say the same thing. Yeah. And I, I mean, so, it just, it's one of those like Nostradamus things where like you can kind of make anything work, right? Well, I would say that some of the things that people will claim the Bible predicted are very compelling, right? Oh, yeah. You can look up videos on it, look at yeah. the debates on this. Making but I would break. say that they are not more compelling oh. than the things that the Quran predicted. Mm. And mm -hmm. that's the problem. Mm. Um, is you need to look to see if the other side is using a similar argument and then ask yourself when you look and you say people saying, well, the Quran is accurate because it predicted all these things in the future. Why did you dismiss that? When you looked at that and you just said, no, I dismiss this. Mm -hmm. Why did you dismiss it? Did you dismiss it because 
you just were not going to be convinced by that type of argument, then what that means is secular people won't be convinced by that type of argument. Mm, or yeah, did you dismiss it because they did a bad job arguing for it and then find out exactly how they did a bad job arguing for it mm. so you don't make those same mistakes in your own evangel evangelics? Another example of how this method can be used is if a tool in your evangelism is personal experiences of the divine, for example, you prayed to God and he revealed himself to you, or you had some experience with God, then look at people who use personal experiences of the divine to justify other faiths, go through different iterations of that for the experiences that you find most compelling and that are most likely to convince you to switch faiths, because those will be the experiences that define within your own faith that will be most likely to get those from outside your faith to switch faiths. What I will say is I have never heard of this model of evangelization working on somebody. The my book is true because it predicted things in the future seems to only work within it as like an intercommunity circle jerk. It mm. doesn't seem to work or or strengthening the faith of people within the community. It, it doesn't seem to be very effective on people outside of the community. Well, it, it seems to me like it's one of those things that wouldn't be a good conversion mechanism because if that level of just like, oh my gosh, data could change someone's mind, then they would be too capricious to stick to any religion. Like it wouldn't be a high retention tactic because then all you have to do is find some other weird data set from some other belief system and it would theoretically convince this person to switch over. We also have to look at groups like the flat earthers who, you know, pretend to be very data driven, but then, you know, when presented with pretty compelling data, even from their own experiments, they're like, well, I'm not convinced. So well, yeah. I, I do think it can be compelling for interfamily um, retention. No, I think it's, I think it's just one of those things that you like. Do you do you remember when you had to write essays in college or high school before before ChatGPT did this for everyone, uh, and you had to sort of you had your thesis already, and then you just had to hunt down additional supporting arguments because you were supposed to have three or something in your stupid essay. So then you would just hunt down additional like, and here's another reason why I was suddenly convinced to do this thing. And so it wasn't that you actually believed it. You just needed additional things that seemed like kind of sufficiently plausible, right? So it's not, I really don't think it's a genuinely compelling argument well, to well, anyone. You've never had it used on you, clearly. Um, no. And you haven't dug into it. I've, I've dug into it. I can see how it could be compelling if you already believe the religious structure. Hmm. But for the same reason that you are dismissing it when Muslims do it, that's why secular people are going to dismiss it when you do it. Yeah. An argument that has always actually been pretty compelling to me, that was one of the most compelling when I was younger, which is the, well, you know, you get an eternal reward if you follow our religion. If you don't, mm. there's nothing, right? So even if it's only an infinitesimally small probability, forget the name of this argument. It's Pascal's wager. But mm. an infinitesimally small probability that it's true that, that you should believe it. Right. The problem is, is that other religions exist. Right. And so then I'm like, well, so then how am I choosing among the religions that all claim to offer this to me? Yeah. The other problem with this argument is that it assumes that the opposite of religious inspired like reason to exist is a nihilistic reason to exist. Mm. Whereas I would say I never had a nihilistic perspective on reality. Uh, Do you know what this reminds I, me of? You know that scene in The Mummy? May the good Lord protect and watch over me. 
as a shepherd watches over his flock. I feel like that's kind of what you're describing here. Just like keep switching around. Yeah. Well, no, it, it, it is. It is. Well, and I think it's it's probably not a compelling reason from a like, if you look at how religion is structured, if you're like, mm. well, I got into this religion so I could get into heaven. Yeah. Like, well, that almost is, is self-canceling. Yeah. Um, and honestly, when I think back to what religion used to be in the past, you know, why people were part of it, it was because of the community cohesion and amenities. And also you like weren't allowed to not be a part of that religion. I don't think it was necessarily like, oh, I know I'm going to go. I mean, pe definitely eternal punishment played a role in people's adherence to religion, but the reason they were part of those religions was that was the community that was the dominating culture. It wasn't this vague threat because they had a ton of other options. Another similar logical argument is the cosmological argument. This is the argument where you say, well, then what created the universe? What was the reason for the universe existing? This argument feels very compelling if you're coming at it from a religious standpoint, like if you already believe in God. However, if you don't believe in God, your immediate and reflexive response to this argument is, well, you can't just say, okay, what created the universe and God created the universe, because then you have to ask, well, then what created God? Now, this doesn't feel to a person who already believes in God like a good response to the argument because they see God as being something wholly different than like the way the universe operates. However, it is immediately what's going to come to mind in a secular person's brain, so much so that I have never heard of anyone converting to Christianity or any religion because of the cosmological argument, and I have never seen it being discussed as a particularly compelling argument within secular circles, so I totally forgot about it while I was creating this video. And so it's just, regardless of its internal consistency or logical strength, it is not a good tool for conversion. It's almost like reading Bible passages to someone to try to convert them. Of course, from your perspective, if you are already within a faith, those are a very compelling source of evidence. But to somebody outside of the faith, they're just random words, basically. Same with the cosmological argument. It is incredibly compelling to people who already are within a faith, but incredibly uncompelling to people who are not already within a faith. Well, um, well, another thing that really drives people away from religion is when people are like, oh, well, you know, I'll be laughing when you're burning in hell or whatever, right? Like, which you actually see with a lot of these communities, they think that they can like, I don't know, be spite driven to get someone to convert. And this just only makes you look like a crazy person and like completely sociopathic and does not l l like, like portray well the religious system. Now, what's interesting is that uh, this argument is one that I mostly hear from just evangelical Protestants. Like, I don't see that from Mormons and stuff like that. Like, there isn't the, I will take pleasure in you being punished when you're wrong about this. But I suspect it's a mechanism that is mostly used to keep people in this thing inter-family. Inter because mm -hmm. when you have looked down on people as, like, stupid for having other belief systems, you're maybe less likely to deconvert. But the problem is, is it may have worked historically, but if you look at the rates that people are leaving the church now, it's clearly not working right now. Now, a system that works really good for conversion, where I've seen bringing people into a faith or back into a faith, 
is after a loss, like the loss of a loved one or something like that. And this seems to be tied to like the rock bottom moment thing. And keep in mind that we already have a lot of ceremonies that are adjacent to this. So most people, when they're having their funeral, it's, it's at a religious institution. Right. Right. When they're having their, like, this is an opportunity to pass on these ideals to somebody. And so I've seen that be pretty good at converting people. I guess, and you know, another way to put this is when you need something to be true, you can be converted to a religion. Like when you really need to believe that your lost loved one has gone to heaven and you'll be reunited, or you really need to believe that there's something more to life than, you know, what you are experiencing now. I think that's when you're uniquely likely to convert and people who've just had a loved one die or who've hit rock bottom are more likely to be in that category. Yeah. They need well, it to be true. It's not it's, where they're convinced. It's where they, they're, they are ready. They, they will happily convince themselves if they have an easy enough template to work with. Yeah. And, and so cultural arguments work really good. Whereas mm-hmm. logical arguments like emotional and cultural arguments are high tier at converting, uh-huh. uh, whereas very low tier are logical, logical yeah. or threatening. So arguments. is this why real Calvinists, as we would define them, have just ceased to really Yeah, exist? because they were almost completely <sighs> utilized logical. logic to try yeah. to convert people. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. That's true. Even today, the Calvinist evangelists are just like completely like logical structure driven. Yeah. Um, well, it's true. It's just a, a, a thing with the tradition and it's why the tradition was always so prone. You know, again, you look at the Calvinists during the colonial time, they were doing the things like crossing out in their books, all of the parts that they thought disagreed with modern science and stuff like that, right? Mm. Like it was an incredibly, it makes it incredibly susceptible to changing secular patterns, but, but it makes it also incredibly unsusceptible to immoral action. Where I think historically, if you look at the groups that were generally the most morally upstanding, they're typically the groups that that had these belief systems. Hmm. But so there are like a good side. Like people would be like, why do you follow it if it's so weak in this one way? And it's like, well, because like I know when, you know, for example, when slavery was going on in the South, like my family was standing up for that. They were fighting against it. They were putting themselves at risk every day. They were the ones who immediately left the cities and set up guerrilla operations. And and that's a very rare thing. And it's something that I hope to preserve. It, it's something that I think to an extent we are doing right now as people with, mm-hmm. you know, high level degrees and stuff like that and making ourselves essentially unemployable by being publicly conservative outside of anything we do for ourselves. It's, it's really... Uh, and unfundable by many VCs. We've yeah, been told. No um, but um, the most compelling argument I have seen work, and we've mentioned this in, in the other video, but I think it's really important that people note this, is just going to them and pointing out what's happening in the secular world, which is uh, the ultimate cultural argument. Hmm. It's saying- This is interesting because this is also associated with one of the most compelling and effective political campaigns that, that took place in terms of converting voters for a particular candidate that was tested in a peer-reviewed way mm-hmm. was a message that did not say anything bad about the opponents or anything good about the oh. candidate of choice, but rather just say, here are basically the Republicans in office right now. Here's what they've done. Simple, no, no images or anything, just like just that text. And that was enough to convince people. So to your point, just saying like, hey, here's what's happening with the counterfactual, like here's our default. 
are you going to do something about it? Suicide rate right now. Here's the mental health rate yeah. in the progressive yeah. community. Here's yeah. the, you, you just cite it all. And it is really compelling that whatever they're doing isn't working. Mm-hmm. And as I said, with Gen Z, I have seen this to be an incredibly compelling argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is interesting because it's not the argument that many evangelists were taught to use yeah. because it historically was not a usable argument. It's only really been a feasible argument for like the past 15 years or so. You Previously, they could say things like, look at that secular world having all that free sex. I bet they're really unhappy about that. But the people were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where was this where you said I could get all this easy sex? Yeah. Now, you know, 10, 20 years on, you're like, look at all these people whose lives have been actually destroyed. Like this seems to not work in the way that everyone said it would work, where they're like, well, if you just do whatever you want, whenever you want, so long as it doesn't hurt other people and you devote your life to reducing suffering in in the world population and you will be affirmed for being whoever you want to be, that these things are going to lead to a productive and happy life. And it's like, well, clearly we now have the data when that group is the dominant cultural group in society and we can see it's demonstrably worse at just about everything in regards to mental health. Um, So that can be really compelling. And then you're like, yeah, but then they don't really believe the religious stuff, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I haven't really convinced them. I've convinced them to follow traditions. But I think you'd be surprised how easy it is to sort of fall in with the belief system once you're following the traditions. You look at the religious system that Simone and I sort of built for our family, and we 100% believe it now, right? Like, we are sold in to the idea of, like, the inevitable God, the the, the the future police, all this stuff. Like, we are bought into it. However, whatever word you want to use for it. And we love it. Like it it works really well, but it it was completely constructed by us. And that shows how just by following even a set of like rules and structures that we built for ourselves and we know we built for ourselves and we know that we invented just thinking, okay, what's the most compelling way we can structure this, that we end up actually believing it. Like that's just how the human mind works. Now people could say, well, if you know you invented it, why? Because our belief system says that we would have been inspired to create it by the actual deity. So it was a divine revelation, even if we think that we were just being creative and trying to come up with the most creative way, because that's the way it would have convinced us to see the truth. Hmm. But it's it, it, it works on us. But really what converted us was all of the rituals, was the way that we related to daily events through this religious lens. And that was convinced by a cultural argument that came to us ourselves. So you could say, okay, well, how do I end up with somebody not ending up like you guys, right? Like, how do I end up? I could go to them and say, look, whatever the secular world is doing isn't working, but, you know, how do I convince my kids not to go out on their own and try to create something totally new like you guys did? And I actually think that the probability of this happening is incredibly low. It's low because like we're doing this because we are from a very specific in our thing on like how religion and genetics Um, co-evolve. We're from a very specific genetic vortex, which is a very weird one that has historically done this. Read the Puritan spotting thing by Starslight Codex, where he's like, one of the ways you know one of these people is they're constantly trying to create new religious traditions. So 
yeah, no, it's it's just a normal thing that our cultural group does. But if I came from a cultural group that was more aligned with like a Catholic worldview or an Orthodox worldview or a Jewish worldview, it would be, I think, tremendously easy to convert me into those worldviews using those cultural arguments. It's mm -hmm. just that there is no religious tradition that is really common in the world today that aligns with uh, my personal predilections and world perspectives. So I was wondering if you had any final thoughts. No, but I, I do, I do think that amenities is what I think is most convincing by a long shot. And by amenities, I mean like the community, the lifestyle, the experience, what you get, be it a spouse or friends or company or a sense of meaning and belonging. I don't think it's anything well, dating else. Markets. Yeah, really dating markets. Important. That's yeah. yeah. We know people who converted to Mormonism just because they couldn't find a husband, and they're like, "Okay, this seems to be the best way to find a husband today." And I think yeah. that this is going to become increasingly common, which means that you, as a religious tradition, do need to be building a functional and healthy dating market. Can be an incredible conversion tool. Yeah. Um, but you need to focus on it. You know, you need to really put in the infrastructure for that and, and, and then evangelize how well it works because people will come for that. I also think a, a really important thing to note is that up until extremely recently, religion was not something you could choose. It was something that you had to live with and it was part of the framework of your reality, your community and your life. So there was no other alternative. Now that we live in a world in which there are so many alternatives, again, that's why I'm so obsessed with amenities. It's about the amenities. If people can choose, they're going to choose the one that leads to the best life and the best outcomes. That's it. And, and well, okay, either. So if they're going to choose a hard religion, they're going to choose the one with the best life and outcomes. That or they're just going to go so soft and let go of all their religion altogether and just sort of die off. So, yeah. Well and this is why we take sort of the elitist like approach where we're not, you know, if, we're not if, going after the soft people. Yeah. If you are primarily targeting, you know, people at rock bottom situations and stuff like that, it will create the wider stream cultural perception that the people don't want to be a part of that group, right? Like, yeah. Oh, that's a low status group. Whereas if you make it difficult to convert, difficult to claim to be a part of the group and you, target like really high tier whether they're earners or intellectuals or anything like that you will have that veneer of in in penetrability as well as and status as well as a value to your kids of like why would i leave this cultural tradition if it's so hard to convert into it this right. is something jews have done really well historically you know the the turning away a person three times when they try to convert and stuff like that yeah uh, yeah well any other thoughts I would just say the only other thing that really matters is your original point that I want to hammer home, which is this is about really converting your kids and that there doesn't seem to be from the evidence you looked at, at least when doing when writing the Pragmatist Guide to Crafting Religion, that suggests that growth through evangelism works. Growth through providing cultural amenities does, which is why groups that, for example, ran orphanages or schools had fresh converts, even if they didn't have children like through their family structures yeah. because they didn't believe in sex or something. We, but this, you know, conversion is not really a meaningful way to grow. Even when you look at some of the most evangelistic religions, like the Mormon religion, where we have people going on, on missions, they're not durably converting that many people ultimately through their missions. Now they are through like, I would say cultural ambassadorship, but that is a very different thing. So I would just say that that's the other thing is that 
if, if you are interested in conversion because you think that is the only way that your religion is going to grow, then you need to just start providing some incredibly needed amenity to a group that is otherwise being abandoned by society, because that seems to be the only way that re- that conversion has worked at scale for groups that are not growing primarily through reproduction, right? Yeah, well, I think show them with your better life, you know? <laughs> and so what she's mentioning is we ran the numbers with, with Mormons because the Mormons will say, well, we converted this many people a year, but that includes people who like, you know, said, oh, I converted so they can use the Mormon soccer field, right? So then we tried to look at people who are actually still tithing after a certain period of time because we were trying to say like, okay, do, do these people actually stay in the church? And the number, they're just incredibly low. In fact, I would argue that more people deconvert because of their mission trip than are converted because of a mission trip. I think, I think that, that's that, safe to say, yeah. The, the biggest flaw in the Mormon faith right now is actually the mission structure and that if they focus more on this wholesome community building, they would do better. This is one of the problems that the evangelical Christians and the Calvinists also had is that they created very, I mean, Footloose is basically about like the, the people who don't even let their children dance, right? Like it, it's, 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 it was, it had a very bad image in terms of cultural amenities. They were just seen as, as rich and stoogy, right? Yeah, um, no fun. Yeah. They wouldn't even enjoy their money. What was the point? Yeah. You know, Ebenezer Scrooge being the typical stereotype within this, this community, which we talk a lot about in the book and we provide a lot of evidence for a lot of people who like aren't familiar with cultural stereotypes thinks he's supposed to be Jewish when he's like from Scotland. Very clearly he's not, but uh, yeah. So, and he doesn't fit any of the other Jewish stereotypes, but he fits almost every Calvinist stereotype who were much more common during the period when the book was written. I, I should also point this out because people not familiar with Calvinist stereotypes may not know this, but Ebenezer is the classical Calvinist name if you're talking about Calvinist stereotypes. To the extent we're in the Puritan spotting checklist I've mentioned earlier that Scott Alexander did, one of the the points is how many male relatives somebody has with the name Ebenezer. It would be like naming a character Levi Goldstein. But, so that did really bad. Like, like Calvinism as a tradition is almost perfectly poorly structured to convert people using cultural arguments Uh, but so is evangelical christianity like they did a pretty bad job outside of their big events and stuff like that which is why the iterations of it that are growing most right now are the mega churches and stuff Mm. which provide this totally unique experience which i think appeals to you know a specific desire within people that is very different than the desire that was fed by historic austere the type of people who were were grossed out by opulence and big displays of really anything which i think we would fall into now there was a final thing i wanted to say here because i thought it was really interesting in what you were touching on it was, it was Mormons, I want to say. Yeah, well, oh, I was going to say the other thing I've noticed within Mormons, and th- this could be a, a whole different video, is I've noticed that one of the reasons their culture is collapsing so quickly right now, because they are falling really quickly in terms of um, fertility rates, in terms of deconversions, um, is this extroversion that the community was selecting for, that we mentioned for earlier in this, hmm. created sort of a, I'd say probably even a genetic predilection due to the people who they were disproportionately converting to be really susceptible to things that like social media status games. It created a community that as soon as social media penetrated that community, as soon as the, especially the wives within this community began to be able to play these social media status games, it was 
incredibly unresistant to this, less so than literally any cultural tradition in the world. And that's why it went from being one of the stronger cultural traditions to one of the weaker cultural traditions. I don't think mm -hmm. it had anything to do with the culture itself. I just think it had been selecting intergenerationally for extroversion and community status games in a way that was much more aggressive than other cultural groups. And, in, and then when people were able to masturbate these instincts, in, in really unhealthy ways through social media, it hit that community really hard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Which is interesting because our community would be one of the most resistant to social media, which may provide an avenue for us growing again, uh, <laughs> specifically because of that. But I mean, there's not many of the people with, I guess, the genetic predilection to even like the type of theological structure that we're pitching. So mm. it would stay small for now. For a while, yeah. <laughs> anyway, love you to death, Simone. And I, I do hope that people are able to use this to convert people more effectively and to hopefully do a better job at evangelizing to your kids. You know, as we say, the first 18 years of a kid's life are your chance to pitch your culture to them. And if you don't do a good job, they're going to leave. Exactly. And then your culture will die. <laughs> your traditions will die. And everything's and over. your people will die. Everyone you've ever loved will disappear to history. Everything that every ancestor before you has worked to do will be for nothing. <laughs> okay, bye. 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 bye.